we all sort of felt that vaccination prevents COVID. So if you prevent COVID, uh, you're likely going to prevent long COVID. Hi, welcome to HIMSCast. I'm Kat Jersich, Senior Editor of Healthcare IT News. Among the many mysteries of COVID-19, one major question is with regard to what many people are referring to as long COVID. In other words, symptoms that persist for weeks and sometimes months after someone first tests positive for the disease. Health IT experts and scientists have begun using data repositories to try and find patterns among patients experiencing long COVID. Recently, a new study from the population health management company Arcadia found that current vaccines reduce the risk of long COVID even when administered up to 12 weeks after a COVID diagnosis. So here today to talk with me about the study and how health IT can advance long COVID research are Michael Simon, Director of Data Science at Arcadia, and Dr. Brett Joie former Assistant Secretary of Health and part of the COVID Patient Recovery Alliance. So let's just talk through this study. Where did the data come from and what were some of the initial findings? The data were uh, a part of the uh, Arcadia's regular business of population health. Um, We serve a pretty broad array of customers ranging from uh, community health center networks to large uh, ACOs, um, uh, integrated uh, clinical networks, and uh, as well as various payer organizations. And the general intention is the integration of broad uh, suites of different electronic health record systems, sometimes uh, just a single system, sometimes numbering in the hundreds or thousands of systems that need to be integrated into a normalized um, uh, data model, uh, as well as payer data. Um, and if you're, if you're talking to uh, you know, ACOs and the like, there's clearly a critical need to understand the, um, uh, a lot of in- analytic outputs of these mm-hmm. data. So ultimately our goal is to um, the aggregation of these data and creating real um, analytic uh, capabilities on top of that. One of the benefits of that is that um, we also have these data in a very um, a structured, um, pre-refined, uh, normalized, and in many cases enriched uh, form. We've already taken um, uh, structured a lot of the uh, unstructured or pseudo-structured data that could have that are useful for analytic and uh, financial analysis. Um, and so that gives us a lot of insight into what's going on, uh, going on with their customers. And it's, it's been a matter of, of, our, of our process that in addition to our, our normal services, um, we will uh, offer opportunities to collaborate with our customers uh, or even to identify opportunities for our customers where we can provide analysis for them um, that go beyond the typical pop health requirements. Um, for example, looking at just interesting utilization trends. Um, with COVID, that kind of brought, well, brought changed everything. Um, but one of those was what uh, health organizations needed to know. And originally, we really need to know just who's at risk, who, can, who do we need to reach out to? And so the initial response was, let's start tracking what's going on with this pandemic back in March of 2020. And so we began uh, organizing those data uh, pretty early on. Um, and then later in the pandemic, we could provide information on vaccinations and uh, we could provide information on which patients had gotten COVID, their recovery, and, and so on. Um, and then even follow up like, okay, who needs to go back and get their preventive care? Um, but in that process, we also had a chance to connect with the COVID-19 uh, Patient Recovery Alliance. And um, as part of that, we learned about other organizations um, working in this federated research program to identify potential relationships um, between long COVID and various uh, factors. What's what, what, you know, defining what does long COVID really look like? What are the factors that are contributing to it? And so on. From, from my standpoint, 
uh, as a as a data scientist, ultimately as you know, as someone who's coming into it looking for potential relationships, patterns, and trends in the data, this is a terrific opportunity. And so, uh, working with the um, uh, the data working group uh, at uh, the PRA, which is where I met uh, Dr. Giroir, um, I had uh, I got uh, feedback among ideas of how we could analyze these data. We brought together this data set. The whole data set is, is uh, um, somewhere on the order of 100 million persons, but really we wanted a select set of individuals who had had the types of encounters that would give you a lot of information about both their history, their longitudinal history in the healthcare system and their previous existing uh, conditions, as well as their experiences throughout the pandemic, whether they had in fact contracted COVID or not. Mm. Um, so limiting that down and then adding additional criteria, we began to search for relationships between pre-existing conditions and COVID. It was an, almost an afterthought looking at vac uh, vaccination um, because when we first started, started it, vaccination was still kind of new. This was early in 2021. But as we brought those data in um, and started look, modeling potential causes, whenever you looked at the vaccination data in combination with the uh, long COVID effects, it, uh, I guess I think of it as uh, fireworks in, hmm. in the data, the visualizations just pop out of the screen. They scream, you have to look at this thing right here. Um, and I kept seeing that in this relationship between vaccination and COVID. Of course, you know, vaccination uh, is a safe and effective way to reduce um, you know, the incidence of uh, getting COVID in the first place. But the fact that it was specifically occurring with long COVID was, I wouldn't say a surprise, but it wasn't something we expected to see. Mm -hmm. So with help from the uh, Patient Recovery Alliance and thinking about possible analyses, we focused in on that. And as a result of that focus and that refinement, looking at it from lots of different angles, we came to the conclusions you mentioned earlier, uh, that vaccinated individuals seem to be, uh, uh, there seem to be a protective effect for them against long COVID symptoms. Um, and that unvaccinated individuals who contracted COVID, but then were vaccinated um, after uh, they contracted COVID, uh, seem to be also protected against long COVID symptoms. And so, and furthermore, that there seemed to be this time-related effect of the sooner, even the sooner after your infection that you got vaccinated, the more like, the more protected you were. Hmm. Um, those were some very exciting uh, findings, something we really excited to share with uh, the Alliance. And, um, and also the first point where we thought this is something we'd like to, to share beyond just our community, beyond just our customers and uh, in this group, to maybe help with some additional hypothesis formation and uh, um, and spur on additional useful studies uh, from others working on this. Hmm. Thank you so much. Dr. Brett, do you have anything to add um, to that? That was really thorough, Michael. Thank you. <laughs> well, no, I agree with Michael and really enjoyed the collaboration. Uh, this was really striking in a couple of ways. We all sort of felt that vaccination prevents COVID. So if you <laughs> prevent COVID, uh, you're likely going to prevent long COVID. But the two most striking uh, pieces one which has already been confirmed by overseas studies is that after vaccination, if you do get COVID, your chances of getting long COVID are much reduced. And then the very striking finding that even early vaccination after the diagnosis reduces the symptoms of long COVID. Um, this is very important, not only from a policy standpoint, like should we delay vaccination after COVID or should you get it early? But it really matches some of the underlying hypotheses of long COVID, meaning that one of the prime uh, hypothesis is that there's actually underlying low-level smoldering infection. So mm -hmm. we, all, we all know that after your infection, your PCR in your nose can stay positive for up to 12 weeks.
but there's been detection of virus in the intestine and other tissues at a very, very low level, uh, meaning that although your body gets over the disease, it doesn't really get over the infection. So this chronic low level infection um, could uh, engender all the symptoms of long COVID as we think it does in the multi-inflammatory syndrome in children, MISD. Um, so what this would suggest is that that boost of vaccine, even after you get COVID, kind of bumps your immune system up and perhaps it gets rid of that small uh, level of virus that's just smoldering in your body and thus reducing long COVID. So from this incredible information set, it really can be used in a top-down way to support one of the most important hypotheses. And this is very important because it can lead to treatments and cures, not just vaccines, but potentially other treatments even after COVID might reduce long COVID, which is going to be a tremendous pop, uh, burden on the healthcare system and on people all throughout the country and the world. Absolutely. I mean, we're, we're hearing so much about the the sort of mysteries engendered by long COVID. As we have as we're starting to examine more and more data, I think researchers such as yourselves are trying to unravel some of those mysteries, which is very exciting. I'm wondering if we could talk a little, kind of dig down a little bit more into the findings. Were there particular symptoms that were reduced um, because of vaccines? I know long COVID can really encompass all kinds of different uh, lingering feelings, <laughs> lingering symptoms. So were there specific ones that um, were sort of pinpointed by the data? There weren't, with a couple exceptions, the, uh, the symptoms ranged pretty broadly from, you know, things like vomiting and, and GI, uh, GI troubles, uh, loss in, of taste and smell. Although um, in, the, in the longer case, I, we didn't necessarily see it as much as the fogginess, the reported neurologic issues. Um, and, uh, and general fatigue. And hmm. fatigue is the one I think you hear, uh, um, you know, uh, I personally uh, know some folks that are dealing now with chronic fatigue syndrome. Mm -hmm. And so that's one that had a lot of reports. Importantly, we'd originally been, we weren't sure exactly how to look for those types of symptoms. So looking for multiple symptoms expressed, meaning, you know, you come in and you don't, you, you don't feel so good, or there's a bout of, you know, there's a bout of vomiting, that's not quite enough. But seeing multiple symptoms together that's where the association becomes very strong. Um, so a lot of those, a lot of those symptoms, not even getting up to the onset of new um, chronic conditions, things like hair loss and and really uh, heavy uh, uh, neurologic uh, issues. Um, just even those low-level symptoms would see a pretty strong relationship, um, you know, within uh, say four to uh, six months after your infection. So were there patterns in terms of vaccine brands and efficacy in terms of reducing these kinds of symptoms? We, because of the nature of the data we used at the time, we didn't explore the relationship between the brands. Hmm. That's a potential target for a follow-up, but right now we don't have any data related to brand associations. Thank you. I, I, it's, as someone who got a specific brand, I'm always kind of keeping an eye on different efficacy yeah. as they emerge. But again, of course, they're all effective, as we mentioned, in terms of reducing incidence of COVID and things like that. But it is kind of fun as a journalist to dig into which ones had specific changes. And of course, um, if some affected different symptoms differently than others, I'd be really interested to hear about that follow-up. Um, and what about demographics? Were older patients more likely to experience these effects? Were younger patients more likely to experience the benefits or perhaps um, different groups of people um, who have been experiencing COVID-19 in different ways? That's one of the things that, that struck me about this because when you're working on a, a, 
a real a scientific research. Um, and especially when you see something that pops out at you, you immediately start trying to figure out what you did wrong. And um, so my, I, I did in fact look through a number of different demographic dimensions. Um, and, uh, and, and by the way, folks on the, at the uh, Patient Recovery Alliance, uh, like Dr. Giroir, um, had a lot of recommendations regarding demographic checks and things like that because of the known associations um, with uh, uh, race, ethnicity, nationality, and so on. Um, the, ultimately, we didn't, we, I found that the results were relatively consistent hmm. across most uh, uh, demographic slices, which is to say that the effect still existed no matter how I sort of turned the cue. Um, for example, I, one of the things you could say is, well, demographics that have, uh, that are much more likely to have a lot of pre-existing conditions, that might predispose them. And so you might get you know, some weighting one way or the other with that group. But it turned out if I looked at, even if I looked at folks without pre-existing conditions, and remember in order to be included, we had to have historical data on their, um, you know, on their health from their PCPs. Um, even comparing groups where we had folks that uh, did not have pre-existing conditions, we still saw relatively the same kinds of results. So that was, uh, and as you know, the same scale of results uh, compared to folks who, uh, who did have chronic conditions. So um, we didn't really see any large effects uh, that way. The one thing that I thought was kind of interesting um, was that when you looked at for a, protect, a potential protective effect from being younger versus being older. So let's say I would I call the um, a sort of uh, early adults versus later adults, uh, deviating say 25 to 45, 45 to 65, I, I could not find any appreciable protection for the younger group. So hmm. for, for those of us who, who, who are or were or are uh, very nearly out of the early, that earlier stage and thinking that, well, there may be some additional protection there, the data don't lend anything, uh, any support to that hypothesis. You kind of in the same, uh, the same boat as everyone else with regard to age, which I found very interesting. The only exception was uh, very small children but I actually excluded them for the most part from the study, mainly because uh, as a father of young children myself, the need to bring a kid in for vomiting and, um, and fevers and things like that is, is a bit different than the rest of the population. And, and I, I would also say from uh, a biological and medical standpoint, this was such a good check because we do know that uh, no matter what age you are, excluding young children who probably have a very low incidence of long COVID, everyone is really subject to it. We know mm -hmm. that the worst a case of COVID you had uh, makes the incidence of long COVID higher, but whether you're young or old and even mild cases can have long COVID uh, symptoms. So again, part of the beauty of this study is that it really reaffirms and actually extends quite a bit uh, the knowledge we have from both basic biology and these small case control studies where we may study a thousand or 1500 uh, healthcare workers. So that finding uh, was, again, very consistent with what we know that long COVID uh, doesn't know any age barriers and older adults like myself um, uh, have the same risk as younger adults, uh, at least for long COVID. Hmm. And the vaccine efficacy was similar in both in terms of reducing uh, long COVID symptoms. I, I saw, here I have to take the, the, the scientific statement, but there was no, there was no significant difference. There was nothing I could report on that, uh, at this time in terms of this particular finding between age groups. That's fascinating. Are there limitations that listeners should be aware of with the study? Any kind of caveats that you want to impose? Sure. I mean, this is, this is an observational study. This hmm. is not a case control. 
um, and uh, we're using with the, uh, with the gracious secondary use uh, rights of our data, uh, the ability to, to take advantage of really terrific quality longitudinal data about these patients. But there's no guarantee it's comprehensive. There's no guarantee that there aren't, um, we've done everything we can to make, to uh, create the highest likelihood that we have all the information possible about the vaccination. But it's still not impossible that, you know, we may be uh, missing that, you know, vaccination here and there. Um, at the time, the lack of information about the uh, uh, vaccine manufacturers um, and also about variants. Um, mm. makes it a bit, uh, um, you know, those are those are uh, parts that we don't think detract from the findings, but that a follow-up um, will give us more um, more knowledge about. Um, and ultimately, it is, you know, we, this is not a rep this is not an exact representation of America's demographic makeup. Hmm. So what's really important is to make sure um, that we are looking at all the different groups of folks that are impacted um, by COVID and impacted by long COVID. Um, and, uh, and not just, just those who, uh, for whom there's an opportunistic um, um, opportunity to have this kind of, uh, this kind of study. Um, but for many of those things, we're, we're following up now to, um, to learn a little bit more about the events themselves and also to uh, learn more about um, what may have, uh, what if anything may have changed with Delta and then ultimately with Omicron um, and so on. So these are, you know, these are understandable, but ultimately the desire is to be able to present the idea um, offer that to uh, organizations like the, the, the Patient Recovery Alliance and the, me the members there, um, and to offer a chance for some hypothesis formation for researchers to really go out and, and test these ideas. And I think this with other, uh, other studies like the Lancet study um, in the UK um, that showed some uh, similar results overseas in a different methodology, um, uh, as well as you know, nuances in other studies are helping to bring more attention to this area, which is desperately needed. Mm. I, I want to follow up. I, I do want to take it um, to talking about, take the conversation to talking about policymakers, but I wanted to ask one follow-up question with regard to the representative demographics. Could you explain what you mean by that, um, that the demographics aren't exactly representative of the American population? Who are you sure. hoping to look at a little bit more closely? Well, for, you know, uh, we uh, we use data from the customers that we work with. There are mm. some, we have uh, fairly broad uh, geographic coverage over the United States, but it's not comprehensive. Um, and so there are some geographic areas where we may be lighter than others. And there are, because of the uh, requirements that we placed on the data in order to uh, ensure that we had sufficient um, coverage uh, um, of the longitudinal coverage as well as coverage of vaccination, that means we had to put in some requirements around, for example, healthcare coverage. Um, so individuals in some groups where there may be uh, Lighter, uh, lighter coverage. Um, although, you know, both Medicaid, Medicare, and uh, and commercial were all, uh, programs, well as exchange programs, were all included. But mm -hmm. still, there's there's a swaths of individuals who aren't covered by those sorts of uh, programs. So um, there's certainly a need to identify where there's um, uh, where there's folks that aren't included in those groups. And then there's um, uh, populations uh, that may often be overlooked because they're not normally part of um, broader healthcare, um, uh, sort of healthcare's reach kind of mm. uh, over, overlooked, underserved, vulnerable population. A lot of the work I do in my, my normal day-to-day -day life is to try to help identify those individuals and help bring them more care to start to reduce some of those healthcare inequities that we see through the implicit bias of, uh, of these types of, uh, uh, these types of analyses. Hmm. But um, in, this, in this analysis, because it's observational, the intent was really to see what do we know has happened so far. 
So um, as we expand the visibility of underserved populations, my hope is that we bring them more into the light and understand better, you know, not just how, you know, not just how they're impacted directly by something like COVID, but also how their ongoing uh, the determinants of their uh, the social determinants of health are affected, and ultimately how their their outcomes in their general uh, healthcare life. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you for uh, following up on that. And I do want to pivot a little bit. You mentioned how researchers might be able to use this information. I want to focus for a second on the PRA. Um, Dr. Brett, could you talk a little bit about the PRA's work and maybe what you hope policymakers and researchers can use this study and perhaps other research for um, in order to address public health matters that are continuing to emerge from COVID? Yes, well, former governor of Utah, uh, Levitt, and former secretary, Levitt, um, formed uh, the organization, uh, Levitt Partners, uh, to do a lot of things. But one of the most important things is to build nonpartisan alliances with a uh, very big tent so that many different types of organizations can be under it. Patient advocates, organizations like Arcadia, healthcare providers, scientists, policymakers to discuss some of the main issues related to healthcare within our country. And very early on, long COVID was identified as an issue we needed to grapple with. Um, mm -hmm. Depending on the study you read, as many as 30 and perhaps up to 50% of individuals who survive COVID have prolonged symptoms. And we saw a great need for that. So thus the alliance. We put out interim recommendations in September of 2021 that really had uh, a really broad spectrum. A lot of it was awareness. I can't tell you how many people I spoke to, particularly in the mid 2021, who said, my goodness, I never had these migraines before, but now I'm having two or three migraines a week and I can't think, oh, when did this start? What well, started about a month after I had COVID. They're really unaware. And, and literally there was a TV producer on a major national network that I was on and I was talking about long COVID and she stayed on after and talked to me and she clearly had long COVID but did not mm -hmm. understand it. So number one is awareness. Number two is really access. And we really focused on access, um, not just for the haves as, as Michael said, but really providing grants in other uh, uh, ways that uh, places like federally qualified health centers, we call community health centers now, um, can support the treatment of patients with long COVID because not everyone is fortunate enough to be at the Mayo Clinic or Mount Sinai or one of the major places. Um, this really starts in the community. So uh, FQHCs take care of one third of those in poverty within our country, most of the homeless and many of the migrants, and we need to provide that. We also talked about the need, for example, for a national uh, 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 really helpline, technical assistance line. When I was uh, in the Trump administration, we very successfully did this um, for the treatment of opioid use disorder, where there were national technical resources that people could call in on. And then we talked about funding, including research and new data. So it's, it's very, very broad recommendations. And I would say that uh, five of our recommendations went directly into a congressional bill that's now being looked at right now um, to support uh, you know, our understanding of long COVID. So um, you can look at that report, if, if you will, but we're trying to turn science into policy. Uh, that was my job uh, as the Assistant Secretary for Health, and it really is the job of this alliance to turn science into policy, be evidence-based, and as they say, always be evidence-based, and if you don't have the evidence, get some. <laughs> and that's the part of the equation where Michael comes in so important in organizations like his to try to generate the evidence base or at least define 
where we need to go make some uh, moving into the future. That makes a lot of sense. I know we only have a few minutes left here and I'm wondering, speaking of the future, maybe can both of you weigh in on what some of your hopes are for the near future when it comes to using health IT, using data, finding that evidence and then translating that into policy? I can speak, I'll just speak briefly on uh, the desire to uh, expand the, uh, the movement for more interoperability, more opportunities mm. for, for, um, for data sharing, certainly. There's a lot, of, a lot more interest I'm seeing in health organizations in uh, not just using their data for their operations, but really thinking forward. And, and just being able to support that with the right kind of tools and the right kind of infrastructure and the right kind of data. Uh, for me, that's, that's a positive signal for the future. Um, and I hope that also uh, patients will be able to participate uh, a little bit more in um, you know, not, not you know, yes, yes, having control and also having a role in uh, the ability to use their data to move things forward, um, uh, to help move research programs forward and to help, you know, as it gets, we get into more biomarker, biochemical analysis, genomic analysis. Um, I'm excited about the prospects of using this information to find, to get really useful findings even faster and be able to convey them to our partners out in other, um, you know, in the research space even more quickly. I am totally excited about the kinds of information that was generated by Michael and Arcadia um, and really think it's something that we need to expand to the future. Michael knows that within the first 15 minutes of our conversation, he had the ability to answer 20 different questions that were absolutely incredibly important for COVID. One of which is, of course, you know, when to vaccinate even after COVID, but also issues of natural immunity. Does that natural immunity actually prevent against getting COVID? Does it prevent against getting long COVID? Does it actually make you more likely to get long COVID if you get it secondarily? What about issues of ethnicity and race? Um, aside from all the underlying conditions, uh, do the fact that you are African-American, does the fact that you're African-American make you more likely for some of these complications? And, uh, you know, there are, uh, you know, genetic factors like one in 11 African-Americans have sickle cell trait. Sickle mm -hmm. cell trait can predispose to all sorts of bad things with COVID, not just sickle cell disease, but the trait. Um, when I was the Assistant Secretary for Health, we had Medicaid look at uh, the whole country through their TMSIS database looking at sickle cell disease. Hmm. We had no idea what the quality of sickle cell disease was, quality of care, but looking retrospectively at that kind of claims database, utilization database, we saw that less than half of people with sickle cell uh, get the care that they need, actually about 30% of them. So uh, I think uh, from a clinician and a policymaker point of view, I think what Michael and Arcadia has done is sort of emblematic of where we need to go in the future. As he said, it's not the whole answer. A lot of it's hypothesis generating, but we need those. And they can answer questions in a way that we can't do in a 500 person or 1000 person study. So um, we need this new synthesis, and I'm, I'm just very honored to have been a small part in the tremendous work that Michael and Arcadia has done in the study. That's wonderful. As a journalist and a data nerd myself, I'm very excited to keep uh, reading more about these findings because there's nothing more fun than filtering by specific categories and seeing how the data changes. <laughs> I might need a couple new hobbies. Um, but <laughs> thank you both so much for joining me today. I hope uh, you enjoyed our conversation. I certainly have. Yes. Yes, thank you. Thank for your you. Time. This has been fun.
And to all our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to Cast. If you liked this episode, please rate or review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe if you aren't already. And as always, stay safe and well out there. Thanks so much. <laughs>